Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, as we heard this morning, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I also abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love, now keep my commandments, and you will abide in my love." just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be to the full. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. If I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business, instead I have now called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last and so that wherever, whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. You may be seated. There's 10 sermons in this text. We'll get two. Uh, First of all, just a little background. Um, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. It's packed with Jewish pilgrims from all over the world because they're there to celebrate the highest of of all their holidays, Passover. Uh, Passover is that holiday that celebrates when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt through the blood of a lamb. So in Jesus' day, to fully celebrate this holiday, three things were required. Number one, you needed to be in Jerusalem because God instructed that. Number two, each family needed to get a lamb, one year old without blemish. God instructed that also. The third thing is you needed to find a place, Passover evening, to eat this meal with your family. Now this was a challenge. Because Jerusalem, during the time of Jesus, is a city of 200,000, and now all of a sudden it swells to 2 million. Jesus scored big. (laughs) He really did. The text says that he found an upper room. Well, we think upstairs, but that's not what upper room means. It was room in the upper. It was, let me me show you what this means. Um, Here's a wonderful map of Jerusalem. That's why I gave that to you. I want you guys to put that in your Bibles because this will be useful uh, the, the weeks to come. I put a second one uh, with attached or maybe on the back side of that that shows you where certain things hap- happened in Jerusalem throughout Jesus' ministry, especially the last week. 
So right there, the big building um, that just jumps out at us is obviously the temple. And then that peninsula that comes down that looks like the peninsula of Florida um, in that day is called the Old City or David's City. Uh, that is what Jerusalem originally was during the time of David, that Florida peninsula. And then it just added and added more. It went up uh, that hill, the western hill, and you see like small houses and then Roman villas, Roman mansions. Well, one is lower and one is also lower class. That's why that's called the lower city. And then when you get up to those mansions, uh, that's the upper city. And that's where the priests lived in those really posh homes. Uh, Jesus scored a room on Passover in the upper city. Um, just wanted to point that out. That'll come in handy as we uh, continue on. But it's in this room where Jesus lays some heavy things on his disciples as we looked at the last couple of weeks. He essentially says, guys, I'm going back to my father. I'm departing this world. I'm leaving you. And he also says, and by the way, where I'm going, you cannot come. You, you must stay. So this festive night quickly turns into a farewell dinner, and these disciples are in trauma. Now, Jesus does, I think, what we'd all do in this moment. If I knew that I was going to die tomorrow, I'd gather the people around me that I love most, my family, and I would download everything that is most dear to me. I have this one last chance to speak to them. All the things that are important, of most importance. I'd be a father, I'd be a husband, I'd be a coach, I'd be a friend. Every word that was said would matter. No holding back. Motions, thoughts, instructions, and then one last blessing. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And John gives us a gift in his gospel because he devotes four long chapters, chapters 13 to 17, to, to describe this last night in all its detail and all the things that Jesus said. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You dropped everything to follow Jesus. You've staked your entire life, your hopes, your future on Jesus. And think about the strength, the security, the joy that you found in just being with him every day for the last three years. And now he says, I'm leaving. And of course they want to know why. Why are you leaving? Why are we staying? And Jesus answers these questions in John chapter 14. He explains why he's leaving. He says, I'm leaving so that I can prepare a place for you in my father's house. It is good that I leave. And now in our text today that we just read, Jesus explains to them why they are staying. And it's for one massive purpose. To bear fruit. Look at John 15 verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. That's why they're staying. 
And that's why we're here. That's why we exist. To bear fruit. Now, what does Jesus mean by fruit? Well, let's go back to the first usage of fruit in our Bibles. In fact, it's the very first words spoken to Adam and Eve. It's God's first commandment. Be fruitful. And we just think, well, this means to have babies. But this is more than just that. Because when God created the world, he puts a garden right in the center of it. In fact, this garden is central to why the world God created is good. Because the garden is God's home, which makes it the first temple, which means Adam and Eve are the first priests. Because they are tasked by God to steward that garden and to make the whole world a garden. And how do they do this? They do this by reflecting God's glory and preaching God's presence into all creation. This is why God gives a priest. And this is important to us because we are a kingdom of priests. This is our, uh, our simple job description. The simple job description that God gives to a priest is be like me. Be like me. And this is what it means to be fruitful. It's to be like God. Because when we are like God, when we put God on display through our lives, our character, our words, our actions, we're bearing fruit. And the reason why this garden is so important to God's creation is because that garden is the world's power source. God lives in that garden, and God puts Adam and Eve in that garden so that they can plug their lives into that power source because as they plug themselves into God, they infuse all creation with the light of God and the presence of God, making the whole world a garden. And this is the tragedy of sin. The world lost the garden. It lost God. We became disconnected from the power source. And all creation went dark and became dead. But God didn't stop being a gardener. He plants another garden. Listen to uh, Psalm 80. This is what God says. This is what David says. You brought a vine out of Egypt. (laughs) That's what Passover celebrates. And you drove out the nations and you planted that vine and you cleared the ground for it and it took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and you look down from heaven and see, watch over this vine, this root that your right hand has planted. That's powerful. Or the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one that I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. He cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a watchtower, and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And Isaiah 5 verse 7 says that the garden of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are that choice vine that he delighted in. 
See, this imagery of, 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 of God being a, a gardener and planting a vineyard, it's God saying to the world, let's try this again. Israel, like Adam and Eve before you, you are now my choice vine that I'm going to plant in my garden. And I have chosen you for one purpose, and it's to bear fruit, to infuse this dark and dead world with the light and light of my presence, to bring heaven to earth, to unleash my rule upon the chaos, bringing shalom. How are they to do this? By being a vine that's planted in God. And how did this go? Well, this is what God says. It's, it, these are tragic words. God says, Israel, I gave you everything. I planted you in a fertile place. I watered you. I cared for you. I gave you everything you needed to flourish. And all I wanted was a harvest of good fruit for you to be like me. But when I looked for that harvest of good grapes, God says, you wielded only Bereshim. Bereshim means rotten and worthless rapes. grapes. Have you ever had one of those where you just accidentally take a rotten, moldy grape and put it in your mouth? That's what God says, Israel, that's what you are. And then God gets specific. He says, I looked for justice, but I only saw bloodshed. I looked for righteousness, but I only heard the screams of the oppressed. And now we're into those two words that are so dear to the heart of God, justice and righteousness, mishpat, zedekah. God's saying, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I want you to be. It's Martin Luther King Day tomorrow. His famous words that he spoke in front of the Lincoln Memorial that he wrote from the Birmingham jail that he also preached 10 days before he, de- before he died. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a stream. Dr. King is quoting Amos 5:22, where God is saying, this is what I want from my people. I want justice to flow out of them like a waterfall. And I want righteousness like a flood. God isn't saying this to national governments. God is saying these words to his people, to his church. Or Paul talks about fruit from a whole nother angle. In Galatians 5 verse 22, he talks about the fruit of the spirit and, and here, this, this, this describes, this fruit describes the kind of people we are to be, the kind of character we are to have, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does this describe you? Does this describe us? Now, fruit, according to Jesus, is doing what he commands. Look at verses uh, 12 through 14. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other. Don't just love each other. 
but love each other the way I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay one's life down for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So fruit according to Jesus essentially is Christ-likeness. It's this humble, selfless, sacrificial love. It's washing feet like a slave. Even for people who betray us and hurt us. It's laying our life down. Are we bearing fruit? Do justice and righteousness, tzedakah and mishpat, flow out of our heart and our soul and our lives in this community? Are we like Christ in our walk, in our talk, in our private life, our public life, at work, at play? Are we selfless like Christ, humble like Christ? Do we love like Christ? This is fruit. And we're not here to make money. We're not on this earth to make a name for ourselves, to move up the social ladder, to make our kids into successful athletes or students. We're not here to have a nice nest egg when we retire. We are here to bear fruit. It's not optional. And if you want to know how important it is to God, look at verse 2. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And you know, I always used to interpret that because you can interpret that word cut off as lift up. And, and, and I think there's a season when we're not bearing fruit because a vine sometimes can grow low and get caught in the mud and the dust and it starts to die. So the gardener comes and he lifts it up. But even still over time, you can't stop there. Because he says, if you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Bearing fruit is why Jesus came to the world. To offer a sick, dying world the fruit of healing, the fruit of reconciliation, the fruit of redemption, the fruit of resurrection. Jesus is the epitome of the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. And now he tells his disciples, guys, I'm leaving. <laughs> Here's the baton. <laughs> it's time for you to run the race. He says, I've chosen you. I brought you on my team. I picked you. And I appointed you for the simple reason that you would go and bear fruit. Man, I've had the joy of visiting these little villages where these disciples are from. Bethsaida, Capernaum, Cana, Nazareth. I mean, no offense to Sparta, Cedar Springs, Wayland. Uh, but that's the kind of town these guys are from. And 
the places that they went because Jesus says you're going to go. Ephesus, Corinth, Rome. They're the New York, the Paris, the London of their day. It's mind-boggling what they did. This small band of disciples took the gospel right into the jaws of the Roman Empire and they changed the world. And why did they change the world? Because they elected the right emperor? Because they got the right senators in office? Because they had the right sign on their front yard? Because they got the right justices in court? No, they changed the world because they, they became like Jesus. And they bore fruit. They put Jesus on full display. Does this move you? Because we stand on the backs of these people. And generation after generation, the baton has been passed and people have run the race of bearing fruit and now the baton is in our hands. It's time for us to get serious about bearing fruit, about being like Christ. And this begs the all-important question, how? How? How does this happen? And see, this is the mistake that we often make, especially in our me-centered world. We, we think that this is all about me, all about us. We think it's about rolling up our sleeves, getting after it, what we do, what we produce, what we accomplish, what we bring to the table. Therefore, we make this about performance, following all the rules, all the things that we need to do, the way our life should look to prove to ourselves and others that we belong to God and, and that our lives are bearing fruit. But for so many of us, if we're really honest, we know something that we're desperately trying to hide. That we haven't changed. That this whole Christian thing is just a charade. I mean, some, some of you right now, deep down, that you're just as gossipy, grumpy, selfish, greedy, worldly, fearful, anxious as you were before you met Christ. And you have things in your life right now that are making you unhappy. They're making the people around you unhappy. They're, they're grieving the heart of God. And you live with these things undisturbed, whether it's a bad habit, an addiction, a secret sin, a secret lifestyle. And then we just get so good at the game. But this isn't a game. <laughs> it isn't. It's not a charade. Because the one who created the world came to the world because he wants to remake us and recreate us. And how does he do that? Let your eyes go to verses four and five. Jesus says, abide in me. As I also abide in you, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you 
abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Seven times in verses four to 10, Jesus uses this word abide. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in my love. And it's, yes, it's, it's in the context in which Jesus is giving commands, all kinds of commands. Over and over again in this farewell speech, he says, this is my command to you. Bearing fruit, you could say, is a command. The, the fruit of righteousness and justice is a command. Verse 12, it says, you must love like me. This is the command that I give to you. And see, this is why so many of us get stuck, though, in this thinking that this is all about me. Which is why so many Christians are just withering branches. This isn't about me. This isn't about you. The whole secret to becoming like Christ is that we are connected to Christ. And not just connected to him superficially. Or this part of me. Or this little piece of me. Or sprinkle a little Jesus on top of me. It's all of me. Every part of me. This is why Jesus says no branch can bear fruit. By itself it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I mean, just think about a branch. This is a powerful uh, image that Jesus is giving to us. You don't have to be a dendro- den- uh, dendrologist. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. Um, that's someone who studies trees. To know what happens to a broken off branch. <laughs> it dies and becomes a stick. Or sometimes you even see a branch on a tree. All the other branches are, are leafy. And yet this branch, no leaf It looks like it's connected, but it's not. It's not tapping into the life of the the tree, of the vine. And that's why what Jesus is saying, without this deep organic connection to me, you will bear no fruit. In fact, you can do nothing apart from me. Now, this word abide, which some of your Bibles translates remain or stay, it speaks to intimate relationship. Which is why Jesus concludes this this whole section by calling them friends. Because being in Christ, abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ, it's not a technique. It's not another form of spirituality. It's not even something that we have to do. It's this deep, deep friendship with the Savior. He calls us friends. And think about friendship. There's no other love like it. Friendship is not something that we perform. Friendship is not a technique. It's not something that we we have to do. We have to be friends with our best friend. Friendship just is. 
In fact, it's something we want. It's something that we crave. And when we experience it, so much of it is organic and unseen to the world around us. This is what it means to abide in Christ. It's deep, deep friendship. It's to live and breathe Jesus. It's a life that's thrown into Jesus. It's a life that's obsessed with Jesus. It's Paul saying, for me to live is Christ. Can you say that today? If you want to know why Paul was so fruitful, it's because of that. Now, the vine in Jesus' day is their national symbol, maybe like the the eagle is our national symbol today. Um, I mean, why wouldn't it be with texts like Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5? Because this, this symbol reminded them, just like that vine that God himself, wow, he planted us. And as Psalm 80 says, he continually looks down on us and cares for us. Now, this, this symbol of the vine was also deeply connected to the temple because that was where God made his home. That was God reestablishing the garden 2.0 on earth where, like Adam and Eve before them, Israel was plugged into God and connected to the power source, which is why I, I find this incredibly fascinating. Uh, at the entrance of the tall building in the middle of the temple, which we call the holy place, which is God's living room, sculpted all around the gate was a vine. That was at the front door of God's living room. Josephus, who writes during this time, and he describes it, he says, but, at, but that gate at the front of, of the house, that's what they call the temple, the house was completely covered with gold, and it also had golden vines above it from which clusters of grapes hung as tall as a man's height. I mean, it was just huge. So every time a worshiper approached the holy place, they saw this massive vine on the front of God's house. Now look at the last words of John 14. Jesus says, come now, let us leave. Let us go from here. So they leave that upper room in the upper city for Gethsemane. And if you look at your map, you can see that they literally have to go through the temple courtyard (laughs) to get there. So why do I think then that the time that Jesus actually starts teaching John 15 is when they're in that temple courtyard and he can point to God's holy place to that vine and say to his disciples, I'm the true vine. I'm the true temple. I'm the true garden of God. Which means the garden, or heaven as we call it, is not something future. It's something that we can experience right now. It's Christ. It's abiding in Christ. Why won't we want this? I mean, Jesus is everything our hearts crave. 
He's the word of God. He's the righteousness of God. He's the glory of God. He's the true exodus. He's the manna. He's water from the rock. He's the peace of God. He's the house of God, the garden of God. He's the true prophet, priest, and king of God. He's the alpha and the omega. All things, says Paul, are from him and to him and through him. To him be the glory. And he calls us friends. How much of our time right now, our pursuits, our agendas, have nothing to do with Jesus? Why are we trying to find life, happiness, satisfaction in all these, all the, all these other vines when Jesus says, I'm the true vine? Paul said, the God who said, let there be light, made that light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is in the face of Christ. And then he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, in this frail existence, we have the presence, the potency, and the power of Almighty God living in us. People sometimes ask me, Rod, what's most lacking in the church today? That's easy. God. In the presence of the holy. And we've become so good at so many things that we have forgotten how to commune with God. We've learned how to organize, build institutions, publish books, insert ourselves in the media, mobilize our, ourselves politically. But we've forgotten how to live and breathe God. Maybe this is why the church has become so irrelevant today and fruitless. And this is why there will be pruning. God is a gardener. He will prune us. And if you know anything about pruning, it involves a knife and cutting. And if you ever witnessed it, it looks like a disaster. The gardener, it looks like he's just attacking the poor plant. And if you didn't know it, you'd think the, the gardener's out to destroy it. All over the ground are things you think, why did you cut that? Why did you cut that? The gardener knows exactly what he's doing. He's not hurting the branches. He's helping them. And it's the gardener's knife and all the cutting that will cause those branches to flourish even more and to bear that much more fruit. Some of us are being pruned right now. Marriages are being pruned right now. I think the church of Jesus Christ is being pruned. I hope it is. It's never fun to be pruned. It's a painful process. But here's what we need to know, that the one who's doing this is not a hired hand. It's not a greedy profiteer. It's our father. It's our father's hands who are doing the cutting and the hurt. 
I send this to people that I know are big enough to handle it, which is why I'm going to read this to you. I sent this to a guy last week who I love so much, and he said it wrecked him. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world stands amazed, well, watch God's methods, watch his ways, how God ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. And while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how God uses whom he chooses and which each purpose fuses him to every act induces him to try God's splendor out. God knows what he's about. Do we want a comfortable life? Do we want an easy life? Or do we want a fruitful life? Do we want to bear fruit? Get in the vine. In my last application about how do we get in the vine? <laughs> how do I get in? Just be all in. Be all in with Jesus. Don't hedge your bets. Don't give them a piece. Don't give them a part. All in. I mean, that's a, what a branch is in a tree. It's all in. And, and therefore, it's healthy and green and producing fruit. Every part of that branch is connected. Where do you seek life? What do you turn to to find hope, meaning, joy, happiness? That's your vine? Is it the true one? What gets all your best time, your attention? Where do you derive your identity from? Where do you go to get your worth and significance? That's your vine. Is it the true vine? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires to which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself and my own shall become yours. And that's exactly what he does. Jesus is all in with us. <laughs> all in. Let's be all in with him. God, we just thank you that you offer us this. That we don't have to be sticks. We can be healthy branches.
God, put your finger on the things in our life that are taking us away from you and detracting us. God, prune us. That's a scary prayer. Those can't be flippant words. God, prune us. Have your your own way with us, Lord. 